0: Here it is!
1: From deep inside your audio device of choice. Wow, it's Dusty in here. Ladies and gentlemen, a new copyrighted feature of this broadcast being premiered today. The Le Show Rush to Judgment. I, I, let me explain. Since the age of seven, with a few years off for good behavior, I've been on uh, sets... TV, motion pictures, not, you know, not a big deal, but it's been a part of my life. So I know a little bit about how they run. I know a little bit about the business behind them. For example, you see um, some credits for a show or a film, and anywhere from one to 72 people are getting producer credits on it. Now, that may mean that rather than give the writers a raise, the writers were given a a credit that puffs them up a little bit. It may mean that it's purely a vanity credit. Yeah, but Zap, you're a producer. Or it may mean you're an actual producer who makes things happen and is responsible for them. So your Alec Baldwin, for example, is either the possessor of a vanity credit here, Alec, you're the star of the movie. You might as well be a producer, too. Or he really is a producer responsible for what's going on around him. Knowledgeable, at least, maybe about what's going on. So somebody, some producer somewhere knew that the first AD who assistant director, pardon me, see, who handed Alec Baldwin the gun in question had been fired two years ago from another film for gun safety problems. Some producer knew that and went ahead anyway because it's a low-budget film. And, you know, assistant directors who haven't been fired for safety violations probably cost more. They rush to judgment. Feature of the show, ladies and gentlemen. For your listening pleasure and um we're now looking at uh, president it's biden right uh in um at the climate summit in Glasgow Scotland um wishing it could be part of the EU still Scotland um the president is there and uh facing two really You know, the the United States is supposed to be in a position of world leadership now regarding the climate. Blah, blah, blah. We're the richest country. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, a lot of political commentary has centered on the. The grindingly slow nature of the negotiations in Washington on the uh, so-called social infrastructure, human infrastructure spending bill that uh, the progressives have been pushing all this time. And um, it's been, there's been a lot of criticism of the, just the, the public display of so far nothing from the, the process. I have a theory that this has been sort of a plan, of, if not a plan, at least in the White House's view, a useful exercise. Because he's going into these negotiations over the next week and a half, he Biden, with these hundred so countries, to try to get some agreement on how do we stop ourselves from despoiling our home, and it it seems to me that trying to negotiate with the two recalcitrant Democratic senators has been, if not intentionally, at least useful. For the president in preparing to negotiate climate deals with China and India, two biggest polluters after us. Who um, aren't exactly in our pocket at this moment. So for Biden. Cinema is India. And uh, China, of course, is Joe Manchin. Hello. Welcome to the show. One moment, please. Whoo! That was close. Actually, it wasn't close at all. From New Orleans, Louisiana, in case you couldn't tell, I'm Harry Shearer, in case you couldn't tell, welcoming you to this edition of the show, including our new Dead Air feature. I hope you liked it. And now I just want to say one word to you.
2: Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microelastics. Think about it. Will you think of that? Yes, I will. Love sure. said. Mm-hmm.
1: New research. Well, I wouldn't be reporting on old research, would I? And by reporting, I mean repeating. New research at Queen's University in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Yeah, they have one there. Highlights the impact microplastics have on hermit crabs. We don't see a lot of them because which play an important role in balancing the marine ecosystem. Research found, according to weather.com. That microplastics affect the behavior of hermit crabs, namely their ability during shell fight contests. Those would seem to be trivial to you and me, but they're vital to the hermit crab survival. Yeah, it's a nutty species. They got a right to that. There's a strong association between hermit crabs and their shelters or shells taken from marine snails to protect their soft abdomens. But what about the snails? This world thing is too much. As the hermit crab grows over the years, it will need to find a succession of larger and larger shells to replace the ones that have become too small. Now, rather, you could give just hormones to the snails, I guess. No, you couldn't. They can achieve this, the hermit crabs, through a contest termed a shell fight involving the attacker wrapping their shell against the defender to evict the opponent from its shell. This hermit crab life is sounding less appealing by the moment. In these contests, the hermit crabs will fight a competitor to secure the shell they favor. These shells are vital in protecting and enabling hermit crabs to grow, reproduce, and survive. Aside from that, no big deal. The new study builds on previous research by Queen's University, apparently are obsessed about these crabs, that showed hermit crabs were less likely to touch or enter high-quality shells when they're exposed to microplastics. The new study, published in Royal Society Open Science, I read it for the Staples, provides a more in-depth insight into how the hermit crab's behavior is affected when they're exposed to microplastics. The microplastics impair both the attacking and defending behavior of hermit crabs during contests. That impedes their ability to secure the larger shell required for growth and survival is all And, as if that's not enough, scientists are sailing the world's open seas, equipped with a tow net, no, with a W, uh, and flow meter, with a W, to sample microplastics, now a global team of oceanographers, led by researchers from Kyushu University, has calibrated and processed data from these expeditions to build a publicly available data set for more accurately assessing the abundance of microplastics in the world's oceans and their long-term effects on all creatures, including you and me, mister. Although the observation of microplastics dates back to the 1970s, standardized data spanning the globe is still limited, says uh, leader of the study. Numerous surveys in the last 50 years have set out to measure the amount of microplastics in the ocean. But to create the new data set, published in the journal Microplastics and Nanoplastics. The researchers collected, calibrated, and gridded data from a total of 8,000-plus pelagic microplastic samples taken from oceans around the world between 2000 and 2019. Quote, we've collected, published, and unpublished data on microplastic distribution from around the world and calibrated to account for differences, such as collection method, and wave height to create standardized, state-of-the-art 2D maps of microplastic abundance. So, the team estimates there are 24.4 trillion pieces of microplastics in the world's upper oceans, with a combined weight of 82,000 to 578,000 tons. That's a big range, but there's a lot of cooking, or the equivalent of roughly 30 billion, 500 million 500 milliliter plastic water bottles. That's the weight. With water or without? Come on, guys. While this work improves our grasp of the actual situation, says the uh, lead researcher, the total amount of microplastics is still likely to be much greater since this is just what we can estimate on the surface. For us to get a clearer picture, we must develop 3D maps probing the depths of the ocean and continue to fill the gaps within our data set. One gap by the way, is the lack of microplastic data for the Indian Ocean and the seas around Southeast Asia, like the South China Sea. Well, you can't get in there. China's building islands. And uh, the team is missing data for microplastics less than 300 micrometers in size, or even on the nanoscale. This is due to the lack of field survey protocols for such plastics and limitations in equipment. And the mesh size of nets used in the field. Yes, they use med- nets in the field. But, uh, you know, that many bottles of water sort of gives you some sense, don't it? Just one word, ladies and gentlemen. Microplastics. And now... We've
3: got the ultra-modern neck no getting oil from the deepest crack So give the boys just a bit of slack And say a hearty what the frack
1: Well, you know, there's waste that occurs with fracking, just as there is with every other form of energy production i mean one day the solar panels have got to be thrown away anyway for decades lax oversight has allowed oil and gas developers to dump billions of barrels of toxic wastewater into the ground in california endangering California's san joaquin valley which uh, has groundwater that's sort of dwindling as we speak. Look at it over there, dwindling. Dwindle, dwindle, dwindle. Even though California is considered a leader in climate and environmental policy, it's surprising to learn, according to the digital journal, that the state allows the oil and gas industry to store wastewater produced during drilling and extraction in uh, pits. Well, what's wrong with pits? Unlined pits in the ground. The practice began in the... Begun in the early 1900s, when we didn't know about lining. Really? A, ma- a new study by the Energy Science and Policy Research Institute, Physicians, Scientists, and Engineers for Healthy Energy, published in Environmental Science and Technology, is the first to analyze the statewide impact of the current and historical use of these unlined ponds to dispose of produced water. Produced water just means... that. It occurs during the fracking process, and it's full of stuff. California jumps out as being the only state that allows this disposal practice. It's been going on for over 100 years, says the study leader, a senior research scientist. This, uh, according to Inside Climate News, you have to ask, why is California still allowing it? Well, maybe it's the future, unlined pits. According to the study, by examining publicly available data, the authors found at least 1,850 active, inactive, and closed produced water ponds throughout the, just the Tulare Basin, where 99% of California's ponds are located. Ponds? Tulare. Most oil and gas-bearing rocks also contain water. When the oil or gas is extracted from these rocks, the water comes along with it. This produced water is a byproduct of almost all oil and gas extraction. The amounts of it can vary widely in different places over the lifetime of a single well. It makes the the well's lifetime a little more interesting, doesn't it? When hydraulic fracturing has been used, fracking, some of the frack fluid may also return to the surface. This is sometimes called flowback water. Flowback water. To distinguish it from the naturally occurring production water that is extracted from the rock formation. Still with me? It's just crappy water. Produced water contains naturally occurring salts, heavy metals, and radioactive materials, along with a diverse array of toxic and cancer-causing additives and glutinous derivatives. Oil companies primarily manage this this wastewater by shooting it back into the ground to recover more oil or just have it out of sight. The researchers found that out of the pond's In the Tulare Basin used exclusively for produced water disposal, about a third were unlined and are still being used for the disposal of this nasty water. This amounts, yes, to one-third of the ponds. The spread of the water plume on some of these ponds extended nearly four kilometers toward agricultural wells. That's wells that are used for water for growing. Our food since the early 1900s, the oil and gas industry has deposited tens of billions of barrels of highly saline and otherwise contaminated water into unlined pits. According to fizz.org, this practice has impacted groundwater resources necessary for present and future potential agricultural, municipal, and domestic use, like for food and for drinking, that kind of water. Once groundwater is contaminated... It is often too expensive to remediate. The study highlights the ongoing risks to California's water supply during a climate-induced time of historic drought. Like, uh, we don't have enough water around to uh, screw with. The San Joaquin Valley is home to 4 million people. Yeah, but they're Trump people. Come on. Who rely on groundwater for residential use and thousands of wells are expected to run dry this year. Farmers in this region have traditionally relied on surface water from winter and spring snowpack melt. Well, yes, but also water from the federal government, which um, runs a water program in California. During droughts, farms often draw on underground water for their crops and livestock. Adding to this crisis, California law does not provide a single standard for water protection. Instead, the Central Valley Control Board for Water, jurisdiction for produced water ponds in the Tulare Basin, appears to make decisions on a case-by-case basis. Like, who's got money? In the case of produced water, the law provides a lower standard of protection than for other oil and gas industry practices, such as fracking. It appears this inconsistency is a key driver for the continued use of unlined ponds or pits they called them one or the other in that story me I prefer the pits news of uh, fracking and now news of the godly A court in Brussels has started considering a crimes against humanity lawsuit brought by five biracial women who were born in Congo and taken away from their black mothers when they were little and the country was under Belgian colonial rule. They're suing the Belgian state now in hopes it will recognize its responsibility for the suffering of thousands of mixed race children known as METI's. The children were snatched away from families and placed in religious institutions and homes by Belgian authorities that ruled Congo from 1906 to 1960. I'm oh, sorry, nineteen oh eight to nineteen sixty. My clients were abducted, abused, ignored, expelled from the world, says lawyer Michelle Hirsch, as a court in the Belgian capital. Examined the civil case. They're living proof of an unconfessed state crime, and soon there will be no one left to testify, unquote. Five women have requested compensation of about $55,000 each. court is expected to deliver a verdict within six weeks. Hey, those Belgian courts, man. They should be... um, (laughs) We should hire them. The five women, all born between 1945 and 1950, filed their lawsuit last year amid growing demands for Belgium to reassess It's colonial past. You know King Leopold? Not a nice man. In 2019, the Belgian government apologized for taking thousands of babies from their African mothers. This was like a thing. Who knew? We knew. The Belgian state did not have the courage to go all the way to name the crime, said the lawyer for the mothers, because its responsibility would have incurred damages. Apologies for history, yes, but... Reparations for the victims? No, said the lawyer. The plaintiffs were all between the ages of two and four when they were taken away. At the request request of the Belgian colonial administration in cooperation with local Catholic Church authorities. You gotta say one thing about the Catholic Church. When they go into something nasty, they go all in. According to legal documents, in all five cases, the fathers did not exercise parental authority. The Belgian administration threatened the girls, Congolese families, with reprisals if they refused to let them go. The children were placed at a religious mission in Kalende in the province of Kasai, that's how you know, with the sisters of St. Vincent de Paul. There they lived with some 20 other mixed-race girls and indigenous orphans in what the Associated Press delicately calls very hard conditions. The Belgian state's strategy, according to lawyers, was aimed at preventing interracial unions and isolating METI's children, known then as, quote, children of shame, unquote, to make sure they would not claim a link with Belgium later in their lives. So, you know, the Belgians were thinking ahead. news. Of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. It is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
3: The stars got together and extinguished the moon and sun, and they reigned forever in the night sky.
1: From New Orleans, this is the show. And now, It's it's a smart
0: world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart smart world.
1: Large technology companies such as SAP, IBM, and Google are underreporting their greenhouse gas emissions at a time of heightened scrutiny over the role of corporations in driving climate change. This is according to a study this week. Research published in the journal Nature Communications found inconsistencies in the way companies declare their carbon footprint, a measure that's increasingly considered important by investors. The study was conducted by conducted by researchers at the Technical University of M- Munich. Um, Munch, to you and me, it examined a so-called scope three, or actually, take the indefinite article out of that sentence, so-called scope three emissions that account for a large share of corporate carbon footprint, such as business travel, employee commuting, and how companies' products are used. That would be a thing. That would be a thing to take account of. I think they're made to be used. That's just an assumption on my part. They just be made to, you know, sit on a shelf. It could happen. Focusing on 56 companies in the tech industry, they found that on average these failed to disclose about half of their admissions. Emissions, I say. Just half, that's all. Christian Stoll, one of the report's authors, said some companies, such as Google's parent Alphabet, were found to have been consistent in how they reported their carbon footprint, but excluded some emissions that should have been counted. Others, such as IBM, had reported their carbon footprint differently depending on the audience. Hello, audience. How you doing? We'll throw you some candy later. And excluded emissions that should have been included. Neither Google nor IBM immediately responded to requests for comment. But the tech company that drew the most attention this week, of course was uh, the one formerly known as Facebook. You've heard of it. Ain't they no more? They uh, changed the, uh, the head of the company, Mark Zuckerberg, fresh from uh, an apparent training in using your hands when you talk, announced that uh, Facebook is changing its name. Greek economist and progressive international co-founder Janos Varoufakis Friday called out Facebook, the former Facebook, for stealing the name Meta. It's the name of a global anti-capitalist think tank. Hands off our Meta, he says, speaking to uh, Zuck. And social media users in Israel are mocking the choice of Meta, it sounds similar to the Hebrew word for dead. Many Twitter users in Israel scoffed at the uh, rebrand using the hashtag Facebook dead. Somebody did not do their branding research, one post read. The author of the Tech Lash tweeted, the Jewish community will ridicule this name for years to come. The uh, company, Facebook, now meta, dead in Hebrew, uh, is under a lot of scrutiny thanks to the publication in the last couple of weeks of what are called the Facebook Papers, which are documents liberated from the company by the whistleblower who appeared on uh, 60 Minutes and testified before Congress in the last couple of weeks showing that uh, the, comp- the internal research at the company showed that it was very aware of the social harms that were being caused by not only Facebook, but by its subsidiary, Instagram. And in many cases, given the research showing social harms, the company opted to continue the practices in question because they led to more engagement. One of the things the company learned is that If you're in, if you are a user, and you're enraged by what you read, you're more engaged. Enraged equals engaged. At uh, the company formerly known as Facebook, now, as I say, um, Mr. Zuck delivered. I I recommend going to the internet and looking at his presentation, or his uh, yeah, its presentation of the new name, just to see how many times a public person can. Use the same hand movements repeatedly in the space of 10 minutes. It's a it's a inspiring performance, and he's done everything to promote the new name, except a a uh, a new company. Oh, no, he did. A virtual world is your new home. No need for makeup or even a comb. Experiences like you always dreamed. And even the ads, especially the ads, are 3D streams. Ladies and gentlemen, our, a bit of news from our friend the Atom, or about our friend the Atom. Adam. Our, Adam, our friend doesn't uh, write these stories, but is the subject of them problems plaguing a nuclear. <laughs> that was Ike coming through. A nuclear waste, or George W. A nuclear waste treatment plant in eastern Idaho. That's a nuclear waste treatment plant. Problems involving it appear to be solved, U.S. officials have said. Converting high-level liquid waste into safer, more easily managed solid waste could start earlier the next year. That's the progress from liquid to solid. It's not finding a place for it. It's just, you know, a conversion in state. Joel Case of the Department of Energy said a test startup without waste. <laughs> that's, that's a good test. will begin next week at the Integrated Waste Treatment Unit at the Energy Department's 890-square-mile site in Idaho that includes the Idaho National Laboratory. Well, at least something is integrated in this country. I'm very confident we can fix the actual process issues, he said, during a meeting of the Idaho Cleanup Project Citizens Advisory Board, noting, though, that the plant hasn't run for several years. So there would be glitches. The 900,000 gallons of sodium-bearing radioactive waste comes from processing spent nuclear fuel to recover highly enriched uranium. The waste is in tanks, you're welcome, above a giant aquifer that supplies water to cities and farms in the region. Here we go again. You know, there's no gravity involved. The tanks can't possibly... The waste has been a sore spot between Idaho and the the Energy Department for years. The federal agency is paying $6,000 in fines every day for missing a deadline to transform the liquid waste into solid waste. That was stipulated in the 1995 agreement, the culmination of a series of federal lawsuits. Because of a missed 2013 deadline, Idaho is now preventing the Energy Department from bringing in research quantities of spent nuclear fuel to be studied at the lab, Scientists say the spent fuel is needed to develop new technologies for the next wave of nuclear reactors. It's part of a U.S. strategy to expand nuclear power and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But what about the waste? Oh, we're changing its state from liquid to solid, don't you know? The prohibition could also damage the lab's status as one of the nation's top nuclear research labs. Are they number one? Energy department officials have said. Additionally, the lab is one of the state's largest employers and a huge economic driver, especially in eastern Idaho. Well, what else is? I mean, it's eastern Idaho. you see what I'm... No. And this is not the first time we've had news of this. So we have it again. Scotland's only working nuclear power plant at Totnes shut down in an emergency procedure this week. What's the problem? Jellyfish. Jellyfish clog the seawater cooling intake pipes at the plant, according to the Scotland Herald. Without access to cool water, a nuclear power plant risks overheating with potentially disastrous results. The intake pipes can also be damaged, which disrupts power generation and ocean life that gets sucked into a power plant's intake pipes. Risks death. I would think so. They would uh, do something about it, but they need the prevision. The threat that uh, these umbrella-shaped marine animals pose to nuclear power plants, neither new nor unknown. Nuclear power plant closures, even temporary ones, are expensive, according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, to prevent, protect marine life and avert power plant closures. Scientists are exploring early warning system options, like a uh, Stay away, jellyfish. Something like that. For example, researchers at Cranfield University in the UK launched a project earlier this year to determine whether drones could be used to provide estimates of jellyfish locations, amounts, and density. Well, they could could bomb them. Drone bomb the jellyfish. Yes, you heard it here. Blooms of translucent jellyfish with their trailing stinging tentacles. I got stung by one at the age of five and I've always been bitter about it, ever since. They are sometimes described as invasions because they often emerge en masse in a way that appears sudden. Determined observers may find early clues of a jellyfish bloom, spotting them by way of drones, requires balancing recognition accuracy with recognition speed if that goal of the whole deal is to take preventive action to avoid nuclear power plant disruption. Scientists have been at work developing algorithms that foster this balance, including one stu- study that delivered results within a desirable time frame with over 90% accuracy. Another early detection effort involves investigating the potential for acoustic characteristics of uh, jellyfish to detect their numbers, density, and threat level. they In case you didn't know this, their underwater undulations create sounds, acoustic scatterings that give them away, as long as humans are willing to listen. These spineless, brainless, bloodless creatures shut down the Tardinus nuclear power plant once before, ten years ago, at a cost of approximately a million and a half dollars a day. Swarms of them have also been responsible for nuclear power plant shutdowns in Israel, Japan, the United States, the Philippines, South Korea, and Sweden. It may be our enemy number one, but we need it for the privilege. And now, the apologies of the week.
3: We're so sorry.
1: We go first to uh, Wyoming, where Representative Stephen Harshman apologized this week for cursing a fellow lawmaker on a hot microphone that was heard in the Wyoming House of Representatives. A third lawmaker signaled that he would ask his colleagues to censure Harshman. Well, he's called Harshman. What do you expect next week? He's a Republican from Casper, not the ghost and not the mattress was participating in a special session remotely when the former Speaker of the House, Harshman, used derogatory language against Representative Chuck Gray, another Republican. During an unrelated conversation, the comments were picked up on a Zoom broadcast and heard in the chamber. Chuck Gray, F inaudible, Harshman was caught saying, little inaudible. And the next day's special session began with Harshman publicly apologizing to the entire body and to Gray specifically. Harshman said he had driven to Cheyenne from Casper specifically to apologize. He said he had remembered the degrading words without realizing his computer microphone was on. Doing so, breached the decorum of the house, he says. I apologize for that distraction because we have real work to do for our people. It wasn't right.
3: Sorry, sorry, sorry and it won't happen again.
1: The uh, current speaker took action against Harshman, revoking his privileges to participate remotely. Harsh treatment for Harshman. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti issued an apology on behalf of the city of Los Angeles this week for the massacre of Chinese immigrants in 1871 and announced plans to build a monument as a reminder of the tragic events that resulted from unchecked racism and hate. On October 24, 1871, a mob of 500 mostly white Angelenos descended on LA's Chinese district, hunted down, tortured, and killed 18 Chinese immigrants, including a young boy and the immigrant community's only medical doctor. The incident, which began as an argument between two rival tongs, received nationwide attention. No spatulas were involved, however. It is believed to be the largest recorded mass lynching in United States history. Eight men were tried and convicted. The convictions were overturned because law in place at the time prevented Chinese people from testifying in open court. The perpetrators were released. The mayor closed his remarks during the commemoration event, saying, quote, I'm sorry for this city. I'm sorry for those who were official representatives of this and the violence that begot. I'm sorry for the unchecked violence that happened and took the lives of 19 of our fellow Angelinos, But we know that saying sorry has to come with actions and not just words. So far, he's come up with actions, uh, words. The superintendent of a Perry County, Kentucky school district said that disciplinary actions were taken after photos posted to social media showed high school students giving lap dances to staff members. Hazard Independent School District Superintendent Sandra Combs said she was made aware of the images this week and launched an investigation. The pictures were posted on the Hazard High School athletic page, since been removed. Still circulating on social media, though. Hurry! And show scantily clad male and female students appearing to touch and dance in front of staff members district has a responsibility to address these issues that arise out of school-based activities. We're doing exactly that, Combs said. I- appropriate disciplinary action has been taken. Couldn't give more information. We strive to foster creativity in our students, but unfortunately this time it was carried too far. The district has not identified any of the students or staff involved. Yet. We, while we value our students' creativity, she said. We must also ensure that it is focused in an appropriate direction. And we will be more vigilant toward that goal in the future. At the end of the day, the lighthearted activity simply got out of hand. And for that, we apologize. Bristol Rovers manager, Joey Barton, that's an English soccer team, and he's the manager or coach, apologized this week for referencing the Holocaust and describing his club's performance last weekend. How many did they kill? Barton was criticized by anti-Semitism campaigners and contacted by the Football Association for the analogy after the, sites, the sides 3-1 to one loss to rivals Newport County. Someone gets in for a game, does well, but then has a call of Holocaust, a nightmare, an absolute disaster, the former midfielder said at the time. The British Holocaust Memorial Day steering group said in a statement this week it found the comment to be really offensive. To compare the poor performance of a player or team to a Holocaust shows a lack of understanding of the true barbarism, torture, and evil that was inflicted on vulnerable groups in society, it said. Now, later, (laughs) Barton apologized and told reporters that the Football Association had written to him, the F.A., the sweet F.A., had written to remind him about the use of language. He said he understood why people were upset. And it would not happen again. last thing you want to do is cause offense or upset anybody. So if anybody was offended by that, I would like to apologize for that. Courtesy of the New York Times. That's an if-pology. I'm paying them a royalty now for that. The Catholic Church in Spain, where it was powerful enough to run a little uh, inquisition a few centuries back, has offered an apology to victims of child abuse and the church's failure to investigate and punish the culprits. They investigated and punished the non-believers. After the launch of an anonymous email service where victims can report incidents of abuse, Carlos Osoro, the Cardinal Archbishop in Madrid and vice president of the Spanish Episcopal Conference, well, are you Spanish or Episcopal? Oh, I see. Said that reports of abuse were very serious, and apologize for the abuse suffered by children and adults over recent decades. We say sorry. We ask for public forgiveness. Unquote. After pledging to act on any accusations submitted to the church, Osoro said, This is very serious. It doesn't matter if there are two, five, or 90,000. What matters is the person who has been the victim of abuse by someone who has a responsibility in the church. I also publicly ask for forgiveness from here because it is serious. It is dramatic unquote, the Cardinal Archbishop of Madrid. And gets a dramatic delivery as a result. National Hockey League Players Association Executive Director Donald Fair became the latest figure in a Chicago Blackhawks scandal to apologize to Kyle Beach, saying, quote, I am truly sorry. This is hours after Beach identified himself as the John Doe, who levied sexual assault allegations against former Blackhawks video coach. All right. That should take care of that. And, oh, two more. Canadian actor Nicholas Campbell, known for his role as Gordon Cooper on the CBC's Coroner, God, I wish we could get that here, will not return to the show's production until an investigation can be conducted after Campbell was heard using racist slurs on the set of a different film project. A black grip technician says the actor used the N-word while working on the film Impasse in a town northwest of Toronto. He said the word twice on October 17th, according to the black grip technician. Campbell says he'd like to personally apologize to Mike and anyone else on the set. Whom he has offended. That word should never be spoken aloud, certainly not by the likes of me, a white guy who is old enough to know better. It doesn't matter the context in which it was used. It doesn't matter that I was retelling a story, that I was actually quoting someone else's usage of that word. That horrible and divisive word should never come out of my mouth, and it never will again. And Snoop Dogg and Eminem have dropped their feud. Yes, that we should be happy. Chatting on the radio show The Breakfast Club, Snoop Dogg revealed the drama between him and Eminem had added, and did, thanks to an apology from Snoop. Man, I love Eminem. And the thing is, we love hip-hop so much, we're competitive. We battle rappers, so that was supposed to trigger that in him, Snoop said, and referring to when he said last year that he didn't think Eminem was a top-ten rapper of all time. Ow! we brothers, we family, so we learn to appreciate each other for what we do when we get down. We had a long conversation about the respect we have for each other and the way we need to talk in public about each other, said the 50-year-old Snoop Dogg. Yes, now you feel old, don't you? He's going to participate in the Super Bowl halftime show. Maybe why he's doing a public thing now, trying to get some early ink. I felt like I was out of pocket. I apologized to him, and I let him know, and I'm just bettering myself. I make mistakes. I ain't perfect. I'm Snoop Dogg. And with that, we can all agree. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. sitting here wondering if I should change the name of this program to Le Meta. Seems to be the in thing to do right now. But the in thing right now is the out thing later, so screw it. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over the same radio stations. Radio! And on your audio device of choice whenever you want. And it'll be just like Changing the the name of everything to Meta, if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh Uh-huh. The email address for this program. Your chance, fleeting, to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. And the email address for this program. Did I say that? Then you get the playlist and music heard here. Whatever, it's all at HarryShearer.com, and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates from through the facilities and fabulous facilities they are of WWNO New Orleans. So long from the Crescent City.